Understandably, nations have poured billions into shoring up health services, but the recovery, now that lockdowns are being lifted, needs to take into consideration our other global emergency, climate change. So there's a big opportunity to retrofit buildings and homes across this country, to clean up our transportation sector with electric vehicles, to clean up our electricity system with wind and solar. In the near term, we have to think of not only what are our goals, but how do we address the barriers to make sure we're making equitable investments so that we can actually reach those goals together. A lot of smart people are thinking about how to rebuild the American economy coming out of the coronavirus pandemic in a way that also helps to mitigate climate change. There's an opportunity to reboot the country in a way that is cleaner and more sustainable for generations to come. This is also a moment to build back with more resilience. That word gets thrown around frequently, but what does it really mean? And how should leaders be factoring resilience into their recovery efforts? We explore in this episode of Political Climate, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm your host, Julia Piper, and this is the fifth episode in our Relief Rescue Rebuild series, supported by the think tank Third Way. 2020 has been a standout year, not just because of COVID-19 and a historic U.S. election, but also because there have been a series of devastating natural disasters. In general, research shows that hurricanes are getting stronger, wetter, and are maintaining their intensity for longer, bringing destruction further inland from the coasts. Wildfires in the West are becoming more destructive, widespread, expensive, and psychologically burdensome. At the same time, sea level rise is causing water to seep into cities and towns, destroying property and roads, and even creating threats to national security. While political leaders debate the policy solutions to mitigate our changing climate, it's becoming increasingly clear that it's too late to only address the root cause of the issue, and that we must also adapt to a new, more destructive reality. President-elect Joe Biden's Build Back Better plan references resilience several times, calling for climate-resilient school campuses, resilient public transit systems, forests that are resilient to wildfires, resilient farms and agricultural systems, and more. In this episode, I speak to Norfolk, Virginia City Councilwoman Andrea McClellan about how her coastal city, home to the world's largest naval station, is coping with rising seas and worsening flooding that's forcing residents to grapple with resilience and even coastal retreat. McClellan co-authored a report on climate change for the New Deal leaders, 
a selective national network of rising pro-growth progressive elected leaders. And she just put her hat in the ring for Virginia Lieutenant Governor, where she's making resilience a central part of her campaign. But first, I check in with Josh Freed, founder and leader of Third Way's Climate and Energy Program, on how the Biden administration is shaping up and what we should watch for on the policy front post-election. Jump ahead to the 30-minute mark for my interview with Councilwoman McClellan. To kick things off, here's Josh. So, Josh, when we spoke last, it was just before the election, election day anyway, since this was kind of like election (laughs) three months, it feels like. And at that point, we were talking about what people should expect. Of course, here we sit now. We're just a month out from the actual election day. And Joe Biden is now president elect. You know, there's been some legal challenges from the Trump team, but states have certified their results. And here we are looking at a Biden presidency. Of course, I think as our listeners will know, Georgia's Senate races remain uh, to be determined. So there is a chance that Democrats could take majority back in the Senate. But there's also a real chance there that there's a divided government and Republicans maintain control of the Senate. So where you sit today, what would you tell our listeners now about what to look out for on the climate and energy front specifically, given that we have a little bit more information? I think it's clear as president-elect Biden, and what a great thing that is to say after four years of dealing with the Trump administration, is going to be addressing climate and clean energy as part of a whole-of-government approach. It's ramping up even beyond the significant ways that the Obama administration worked on bringing down carbon emissions and accelerating the development and then deployment of clean energy. And it's something we'll see across every likely agency of the government in all of the plans to help the economy, which has been absolutely battered and is going to be even worse by the time the president and Kamala Harris are sworn in her as vice president and actually take the reins of government. So there's a huge amount of work to be done. Unlike previous administrations, climate is going to be part of how all of the different approaches are considered. We saw that most recently as uh, the president-elect rolled out his national security team, and we saw John Kerry named as special envoy, and the description was to deal with climate in the national security context as part of the NSC and also in the international realm. We're likely to see similar appointments on the domestic side, both as part of the White House's domestic team and then in agencies like the Department of Energy and EPA, but also as part of consideration likely for who takes over the Department of Transportation, Housing and Urban Development, and on and on. We know, and we've talked about for a long time, that climate change, as much as it is an environmental issue, as much as it is an environmental justice issue, and on and on, it's also a question of political economy. And that touches everything from the Department of Treasury, where Janet Yellen, who has been nominated, really has a great record on this, to the Department of Defense and National Security issues, to how we deal with our housing and procurement and every other function of government. So it's less about having necessarily one person at a cabinet level agency than starting to integrate how you think about climate and carbon emissions and clean energy 
in virtually every action that the government undertakes. You mentioned personnel is policy the last time we spoke, and I think we're really seeing that happen right now. We're seeing that roll out. And to that point, you know, Ron Klain was named as chief of staff to uh, President-elect Joe Biden. Um, I know that the uh, climate world, I think, was pretty happy with that. He's seen as a unifying force and someone who would put climate change high up on the agenda. And coincidentally, his wife is Monica Medina, who we work with here at the podcast on distributing it through the Our Daily Planet news site, which is an independent environmental news site. So an interesting little linkage there and I think speaks to, you know, how well-spoken and how informed Ron Klain will be uh, on these kinds of issues. So uh, I think it's just another piece that bolsters your point there, that this issue will now be embedded into a lot of different roles throughout the Biden administration. Yeah. And and we couldn't be more thrilled that Ron was named chief of staff. He's also worked closely with Third Way and is a former board member of ours. And, you know, one of the things that we're just seeing is that there's a bringing together of people who know how government works and want to use government to help the public. And after four years of government as vanity project and instrument of vengeance for uh, the outgoing president, actually rolling up our sleeves and seeing how government can solve problems and help the American public is a big change that's long overdue. So it's exciting to see that and exciting to see someone whether it's it's Ron Klain or others come in and knowing that these are the type of people that are going to hit the ground running and focus on solving problems. Well, where we sit today, we don't know yet who the uh, appointee will be for the Department of Energy, although that is one that our sector will be watching closely because uh, the name Ernest Moniz, previous energy secretary, has been uh, tossed around as someone Biden might pick. Uh, Of course, he could hit the ground running, having been in that role before. But again, uh, but I think he speaks to a broader tension we're seeing in the climate space that will probably play out more going forward around how bold to be, because I think some of the climate activists view Moniz as someone who's Uh, more open to all of the above rather than transitioning rapidly off of fossil fuels. And so his nomination might be somewhat controversial on that front. I guess any final thoughts on that, Josh? We've already seen the direction that the Biden administration is going to go through how they campaigned, through how the president-elect and his team talk about climate and talk about clean energy. The people that they name to senior positions, including the Department of Energy, are going to embody that. And they're going to follow the president's lead and the administration's tone. I'm very confident that whomever they name for positions like the Department of Energy Secretary at EPA are going to be ambitious and bold and accomplish what is possible right now. So what do you think is possible right now? And what does that say about you know how how a Biden administration would get things done. And let's just assume here that there is a divided government because it looks like it would be harder for Democrats to win those two seats in Georgia. So how do you think they go about getting things done when they don't control Congress? And we can probably expect Mitch McConnell to not really want to work with Democrats on getting things done. It doesn't really behoove him politically to do so. So what does the art of the possible look like right now? Well, let's start with what the administration can do. And there, between restoring the smart, clear regulations and also directing of how the government thinks about and 
procurers, the kinds of transportation and materials they use, setting the tone and having a bully pulpit is enormously important. And we've lost that leadership both domestically and globally over the last four years. It's clear that's already coming back. So you'll see the United States re-enter the Paris Agreement and re-enter the conversation globally on how we can be even more ambitious in a way that is smart and good for our economy and good for economies around the world, which are all struggling right now with the pandemic and likely will be for a long time in figuring out how to recover from it. That's a big difference from day one from what we currently have. There's also looking at what kind of data is collected? What information do we know? What is the direction that the administration and others point the country and companies that in many cases have said they'd like to do a lot more, states that have already done a lot more, but they, in that case, were running against a really, really stiff wind, gale force from an administration that was really hostile to action. So last week we saw an exciting announcement from Orsted US, which is one of the largest offshore wind manufacturers and, and installers with the uh, building trade unions. They're going to have a agreement. So all of the workforce around the country installing offshore wind is going to be union and the supply chain for that for American manufactured materials that are part of the uh, part of these turbines wherever possible, are going to be made by union labor. That's a big step in the right direction for what the Biden campaign was talking about and what clean energy advocates have really talked about. Yesterday, uh, we had General Motors make an announcement that they were withdrawing from the lawsuit against California's more ambitious fuel efficiency standards. And in the letter explaining why GM was no longer taking part of that, they laid out an excitement for a clean vehicle and electric vehicle future that hinted at much more ambitious plans forthcoming. We've seen similar announcements from other companies, including Ford and startups, not just Tesla, but also Lordstown Motors and Rivian. So there's a lot of energy, excuse the pun, that seems to have been tamped down because there wasn't direction or there was a lot of confusion and hostility from the federal government that no longer exists. You're going to have a, a Biden administration that looks to everyone else and says, what can we do to help and how can we have you do more? So that's what we're going to get from the administration side. The other part is Congress. If there is, uh, if, if the Senate uh, remains in control of Republicans and that's still very much up in the air, Hopefully it's not. I think both uh, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff are running really competitive races. It is neck and neck. So we shouldn't make any assumptions. But in, in the case that it is Republican controlled, this is a big decision point for not just Mitch McConnell, but for all of the people that are in the Senate in his party. Are they going to choose country and governing over crass partisan politics. And it's a decision that they're going to have to make, and it has huge implications for the country. What do you think those decisions look like? You know, what do you think would compel them to act on climate and energy issues in particular? Well, look, I think there's a higher order question that we're still waiting to see how it plays out. 
which is, is the Republican Party still invested in the American experiment in, in Republican democracy? Uh, to put it's it in mild clear. terms. <laughs> no, I mean, it sounds ridiculous. And like five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, like asking a question like that with a straight face would have you, you know, as a, as a member of the tinfoil hat crew. But we can't say any longer that American exceptionalism prevents that from happening. And Anne Applebaum, who is a center-right journalist and historian who's written a lot about the rise of authoritarianism in Eastern Europe, has been writing and raising alarms about this for a while now, saying she lives part-time in Poland and part-time in the U.S., and, and says, from my perch in Poland, watching what's happening in the U.S. is very clear and very dangerous. It's the Republican Party no longer believes in all of the trappings of democracy, in free and fair elections, in honoring the elections, in working with the other party to determine where compromise can be made and how to govern in the best interests of the country and the American public. Instead, they see the Democrats as an illegitimate enemy and therefore every action that they can take to seize, retain power and deny Democrats' ability to get power and then govern effectively is therefore viewed as fair game. And it has huge implications, unfortunately, for climate and clean energy, because unless the Republicans decide that governing is acceptable, they are going to fight tooth and nail for their ideas. But in the end, getting half a loaf is a lot better than getting nothing at all. Then we're in okay shape. There hasn't been a real indication that they've been willing to do that for years and years now. And a lot of observers keep saying to us, don't fall back in the trap of, of thinking that because in a new event happened, things are going to change without clear evidence that that's happening. We see no evidence of that. So where, where we could see things happening that are good for climate and energy uh, are around funding. There's still a bipartisan agreement that clean energy innovation, including very far into demonstration, even commercialization is good. The Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy Office has continued to get increases of funding, even under a Republican Congress and a Republican president. There's been a focus on carbon capture, advanced nuclear, hydrogen. So that is all good. We could see tax credits extended or new tax credits, including maybe for electric vehicles, for on and offshore wind, for energy storage, for solar. But once you get beyond those, it becomes increasingly hard to see what under the currently constituted Senate could get done. Right. So something like a national clean energy standard, which I think there's a fair bit of buy-in across the political spectrum on the climate interested, among climate interested people, uh, something like that would would not advance. You know, we're talking about the realm of what we already kind of know of, it sounds like. In a functioning two-party system where Republicans are willing to sit down at the table and say, 
let's hash out our differences and get a policy that we as Republicans who are really oriented towards business and towards certain uh, regions of the country feel is good. And you as Democrats who are oriented towards a different set of interests, including maybe the more of the clean energy sector and unions also feel that this is acceptable. They'd get that done. Clean energy standards are wildly popular and more so almost every month with states, with localities, with utilities, with other companies. And they want support from the federal government to be even more ambitious. But we still haven't seen any Republicans in the Senate step forward and say, yeah, I could be for a clean energy standard. And there's almost no Republicans in the House who are even willing to consider that. Yeah, which is, again, interesting because, as you just noted, there's strong support for this. We just saw in Arizona that there was an election for the public utility regulators. And there was some concern that two of the Republicans who were incoming would not want to advance a rulemaking there around getting to 100 percent clean energy in the state. And in fact, they did get elected and they advanced that, even though they did not run on I know a pro clean energy platform per se, or they did not run on a mandate platform anyway. But it still went forward because I think that there's strong domestic and local um drive for a standard like that. And yet, to your point, we don't see that happening at the federal level. And there's so much we could unpack there, I think, around what's motivating uh, different lawmakers to do different things. And, you know, ugh, I, it's it's a story for another day. <laughs> yeah, but Julia, I think two quick things. One is, you know, we in a, in a very shameless plug for some of the work that Third Way and my colleagues have done, put together um, a paper and platform on our website where we track clean energy standards at the utility scale level and at the state and local government. And we found that the number of entities that have adopted really ambitious, either binding commitments or aspirational commitments just accelerated dramatically under the Trump administration. And it's not at all because of Trump, but because companies and states and localities have stepped up and said, we're not slowing down. Climate change needs to be addressed and we're going to do something about it. So it, it shows you that that it is wild, widely popular amongst a whole bunch of different sets of people, as as your example in Arizona also shows. Um, and it's something you know people should check out just because it really it provides a visual of the power behind clear commitments. Um, but I also think we need to be careful not to, with uh, President-elect Biden and, and Vice President-elect Harris, really restoring a functional government and the kind of aspiration and vision and leadership that the over the majority of Americans by a large margin voted for that things are going to come back to normal until Republicans and particularly right now because they control it the Republican Senate recognizes that they need to also start acting in a responsible small d democratic manner and otherwise speculation on specific legislation that may or may not pass, I think it's much more narrow than it should be if, if our government was functioning the way it should. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of great think pieces that have been written about what could happen under a bold stimulus bill, for instance, or what could work its way into budget negotiations. But 
all of that on the clean energy front is really difficult right now. Where we sit today, you know, the two parties are really far apart just around helping businesses that are being crushed right now by the surge and resurgence of coronavirus cases. So, you know, if there's not agreement on that, it's hard to see in real terms, you know, where climate and energy works its way in. Not impossible, but not maybe what well, we're envisioning. Yeah. But I think I think what's interesting there is the Republican Party leadership and everyone else are fall, far apart right now. That if you look at where clean energy is really growing, and for example, the amount of wind that's in Iowa, the potential for auto manufacturers that have increasingly moved south to retool and start building much more, uh, many more electric vehicles, the clean energy sector in Texas that is really robust and growing a lot there's a lot of incentive for rank and file Republicans, even at the federal level, to say, yes, this is the way to rebuild the country, to fix our infrastructure and make it cleaner. But they run up against uh, you know, the, the steel, impenetrable steel wall that was never built on the border with Mexico, but does reside now in the Senate. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Um, the, the wall. Well, the last thing I want to ask you about, because it's an element of rebuilding that we haven't got to yet in this series, in the Relief Rescue Rebuild series just yet, and that is climate resilience. There's been so much to talk about related to the election specifically, but I think that there's a lot to be done, as you referenced earlier. And this is one of those areas where there's so much and we can get detailed about like not just building sea walls, but everything to building codes and how cities and states structure those so that they account for flood risks, give transparency to consumers. Like this is the kind of policymaking that I think people are aching for, but is just getting drowned out. But I want to put it to you since that's where we're going to turn next in the latter half of this show is an interview with a local councilwoman in Norfolk, Virginia. And so what are your thoughts on climate resilience? How do you see that issue maybe working its way into discussions here. And I'll caveat with one more thing in that I feel like whatever you think about climate mitigation and how bold to be, the resilience piece tends to get buy-in, even if you take the word climate out of it, because these are just storms that are battering the U.S. today and that local leaders need solutions around. And I think, you know, we're seeing that play out in a bipartisan basis. So I'm wondering how you think that issue could get addressed going forward. It's a really important issue. And look, Third Way and, and our climate program is reflective of many in the space where we deal with the mitigation side, but don't also sufficiently address resilience, in part because there's long been an artificial barrier, which could take up an entire other show to look at how do we get here and does that make sense and how do we break that down? But it exists. And so it's often talked about separately. I think you're going to see resilience really baked into both the kinds of investment that a Biden administration directs, and that's the kind of investment that will get support from Congress through appropriations or a stimulus if one happens, regardless of the size, but also your point about metrics and measurements and data. There's a lot that can be gathered from the variety of agencies of the federal government simply by directing the people who are career government officials, civil servants who want to do their jobs, but have found it really difficult to get that done over the last four years. And at the very least, a disinterested, if not hostile, senior leadership. That's going to change. And so it means that 
states and localities that want to get more information about flood risk or about how changes in traffic patterns might reduce vehicle miles traveled and also allow them to circumvent roads that are flooding more often than they used to and on and on. So there's a lot of opportunity there. And I think you're going to see in that one space, potentially some hope where Republicans, particularly maybe on the House side, feed ideas up, maybe on the Senate side as well, and at least in the appropriations process, um, start getting some momentum for that to be baked more into infrastructure and stimulus. And then the other part of it, of course, is that's where the rubber hits the road for local leaders, and they're living that on a daily basis. They also desperately need the federal government to step up and provide relief because we've seen revenue for localities and states just plummet with the pandemic and the shutdowns and the decline in, in spending. And they continue to need to deal with all of the impacts of climate and strengthen infrastructure and do all these things. So hopefully that's the other part of it. And there can be some recognition of that and understanding from, from Congress and from the administration, which they now have a sympathetic partner in. Right. Because as we're living through this pandemic, we're also living through a year of unprecedented storms. You know, hurricanes are getting stronger and they're becoming more frequent. This year, the North Atlantic broke the name named storm record with 29 storms. Um, you know, so that I think this is something that's transcending the political dialogue and becoming really, as you just noted, a local issue that people have to deal with because there's no real alternative when your communities are underwater. The two things I never want to learn anything more about in real time is that we've got contingency naming processes for hurricanes because we've run out of the entire first set of names or any other storm. And then also we have learned way too much about pandemics and how we deal with them firsthand. Hopefully 2020, when it ends, we can put both of those things in our scrapbooks or whatever we use now and look back in 10 years and be like, wow, that was a messed up time. <laughs> our doom books. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the apocalypse 2020. Well, yes, hopefully hindsight will be 2020, as people have been saying, and we'll learn from <laughs> this year. Uh, Josh, thank you so much for your time and for breaking down some of these uh, hot button political issues. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Councilwoman McClellan, thank you so much for joining us today. We reached out because we wanted to paint a picture of what climate resilience could and should look like. Uh, but to start, could you paint a picture of what the issues are and the issues that are driving the need for this kind of action? You know, Norfolk, Virginia is home to one of the largest naval bases, I understand, and it's also one of the nation's busiest seaports. It's also sinking. So how is Norfolk changing and what are the challenges that it's facing amid the climate crisis? Sure. Thanks, Julia. So you know, Norfolk is a great port town. Um, we have a, a beautiful community that's hundreds of years old. And um, we have issues as it relates to climate change with flooding, uh, second only to New Orleans in terms of flood risk. And so a typical day in Norfolk might be blue skies, uh, not a raindrop around. And my travel from my house to City Hall is um, I can't get there because the roads are flooded. 
uh, and that's happening more frequently, that sunny day flooding. Um, and it's a combination of uh, tidal flooding as well as the subsidence that is occurring in our region. Uh, so the double whammy makes it very difficult uh, to navigate our roads, uh, not on an infrequent basis now. Um, if you add in uh, that with that tidal flooding, a big storm with rain bombs because of the increased precipitation that we're seeing as a result of climate change, our stormwater systems just become really uh, overwhelmed. And so nuisance flooding becomes a huge issue. Um, and folks, um, you know, you can't get your kids from school. You can't get home from work. The trucks can't get to and from one of the busiest ports. And we can't get 40 or 50,000 sailors on and off the lar- world's largest naval base. And while those events have always occurred in some fashion in Norfolk and our surrounding area, they're happening much more frequently. So 100-year storms are happening at, every year. Um, 500-year storms are happening frequently. And um, it is it is absolutely, um, it is a nuisance now, but it is, uh, it is slowly becoming an issue. It's affecting the values of our housing. It's affecting our ability to get around, uh, to do commerce. And um, it's, it's something that we've got to address. And, I, you know, we, we are effectively starting to address it, but it is a huge problem for sure. Yeah, that's interesting to bring in the naval base element because that has national security implications, maybe not today as you're adapting, but could become a bigger and bigger issue over time. And it's not like you can put a naval base in the middle of the country. Uh, the whole point is you need the water access. Um, exactly. Yeah, hurricanes seem to get the headlines, but it's that repeated impact of flooding day after day and weakening of of coastal systems that can really have damaging effects that maybe go unnoticed until they are sometimes really critical. You know, we don't see it every day, but the global mean sea level has actually risen by eight to nine inches since 1880, with about a third of that increase coming in just the last two and a half decades. That's according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, a U.S. government agency. So the other thing that, you know, Norfolk is part of a region we call Hampton Roads, about 1.7 million people. And oftentimes what you see is, you know, each city has its own planning department and own stormwater department, et cetera, but, but water doesn't know geopolitical boundaries. And so when it floods in Norfolk, it likely is going to also flood in Virginia Beach, our neighboring city, the largest city in the state. And so we are finally starting to come together and look at things that are from a regional watershed basis. And that's really important that it's not, our governmental systems are not set up that way. And it's certainly one of the hindrances to actually trying to adapt um, for this, but that's a that's really really important. Most of the people who uh, live in our region live in one city and work in another. I think we're like the the third highest in the country for having that sort of interconnectivity. But at any rate, it's um it's uh you know water is what makes our area great and is also one of our risks. But what I will tell you is as a region we've come together and collectively have agreed to plan on one and a half feet of sea level rise by 2050, by three feet of sea level rise by 2080, and between four and five feet by 2100. And some might suggest those are actually pretty conservative figures. But those, those are pretty significant uh, water levels that we're, we're going to have to be facing. So, so what does that look like? What does it mean to plan for that kind of sea level rise? I understand there are measures you've taken like seawalls and pumps. There's also uh, a plan to invest $1.8 billion um, in these types of solutions. Could you just explain how you're going at this? 
Well, I think we need to look at climate change, both from a mitigation and an adaptation standpoint. Um, Oftentimes we just talk about climate change uh, generally. Uh, So what we've been doing is really been focusing on the adaptation side and we're starting to look at the mitigation side from an adaptation standpoint. Yes. um, The infrastructure pieces, uh, both gray and green infrastructure. So gray being the pumps and the seawalls and things along those lines, but the green infrastructure, uh, we're really trying to prioritize living shorelines, which help both the water quantity as well as the water quality. Uh, you know, we are on the Chesapeake Bay, and it's really important for us to preserve the quality of the bay. So the water runoff um, and trying to um, address that uh, using more oysters, believe it or not, oyster reefs as well. Um, so um, th- there's definitely that. From a planning standpoint, we have rewritten our zoning code recently and created um, a resilient quotient where we're trying to create a carrot for builders and developers to include more uh, elements in their design where they're holding their water on their property when you have a big storm event. So cisterns and water barrels and uh, rain gardens, pervious pavement, things like that, um, as well as making sure that new building and construction uh, includes hookups for future solar or generators, um, addresses wind, et cetera, things along those lines. And we're also looking um, at where are we in 2100? We've created a a civic engagement process a few years ago called Vision 2100 and tried to look at where our assets were, physical assets uh, in in the community, and start to look at how do we plan that far out? um, Where do we want to emphasize? What do we need to protect, et cetera? But it's scary. This is a, a big, big problem and a big issue. So as I mentioned, we're now just starting to look at climate change mitigation and how do we reduce our carbon footprint? Um, you know, how do we support more public transit? How do we um, make sure that our fleet is um, electrified? How do we look at buildings? Again, getting back to that, you know, creating more energy efficiencies and things along those lines too. Uh, but it's 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 a lot to tackle. And the biggest issue of all is that we're working with budgets that, while before COVID hit were tight and didn't allow for us to do all that we need to do. But now after and during this pandemic, uh, we're going to struggle even more. And so those issues of of future projects that are going to help us address what's going to happen in 2050 are put on the shelf for the time being, because right now we're just trying to survive this crisis. Yeah, I want to follow up on that, because I think a lot of people are thinking now, how do we build out of the coronavirus pandemic and not just the public health crisis, but the economic damage that's come along with it. How do we build back in a better, more sustainable way, um, assuming some funds do eventually uh, get distributed from the federal government? And I'm wondering what you would want to be on the top of your wish list. I understand that Norfolk received $120 million in a resiliency grant from the Department of Housing and Urban Development in 2016, and that was to help combat the threat from rising seas. I'm curious, is this the kind of thing you'd want to see more of going forward? Have you seen any additional funds like that since 2016? Or is this something that you feel like was missing and now you need more of? Describe what the policy request would be. Sure. So uh, the funding that you mentioned in 2016 came as a result and after Hurricane Sandy. And typically the federal government, which is really going to be the partner that's going to have to be part of the solution because you know, in Norfolk, we can't uh, we can't even 
make a, much of a dent in our stormwater and tidal um, flooding issues uh, with our budgets, personally. But at any rate, um, the federal government typically does support these big infrastructure projects after after a hurricane or a catastrophe. Um, and so we really need to see uh, FEMA start to allocate more funding in advance uh, to help us prepare so that we can come out of, of any sort of shock like that better and faster in the future. And they have done that. Um, they've allotted, uh, there's a new program called BRIC, where they're taking 6% six, 6 of the FEMA budget, I believe it is, to start to put in for um, pre-disaster uh, and mitigation projects. So we need to have more money before disasters. That would be number one. Number two, we need to, um, the National Disaster Resilience Competition, where we received $120 million, allowed um, some flexibility and creativity and solutions and was less siloed than most federal funding is. And so uh, more creativity around funding is going to be important. Uh, the third thing I would say is recognizing that we have such large federal partners here with uh, the, the naval base and throughout the region. We need the federal government and the DOD to start being a, a better partner outside the gates. So the arteries that lead to and from the naval base are frequently flooded in some of our worst flooded roads. And we don't receive federal dollars to help us with addressing that infrastructure. There is some recent legislation that will allow them to begin to do so. The Defense Community Infrastructure Program and the Defense Access Roads Act, but they are funded at about $50 million for the entire nation. So we really need to do a better job of, of working with federal partners in that regard, for sure. Another area where we need help at the federal level is to address the National Flood Insurance Program. Um, the NFIP bill, we would love to see a disclosure requirement for real estate transactions. Right now, because Virginia is a buyer beware state as well, if uh, somebody were to purchase a house, they may know to check if it's in a flood zone. And, and if so, they may know that they might need flood insurance. But what they won't have access to is previous flood claims and flood damage. And that's important because the way flood insurance works is that after you have a certain number of flood claims, you go from a repetitive loss category to a severe repetitive loss category, and your flood insurance could um, triple, double, triple, quadruple. And that's not something that you would know in advance of purchasing a house. There's no way of knowing that. You can't contact FEMA and ask for previous flood claims. And also, you can't find out if there's previous flood damage that never actually even resulted in a claim. So we feel like those transactions need to come with full disclosure, and the federal government could certainly help with that with the NFIP bill. This is where the rubber hits the road. <laughs> it is. It is. I mean, listen, if you can find a Carfax report for a used car, you should be able to find a flood fax report for a house that you're purchasing. Yeah. Well, as a uh, recent first-time homebuyer, uh, I can... Uh... I can say that I really wish that that existed, having gone through a sort of flood of papers. Yeah. To put just a slightly finer point on it, do you see a potential uh, stimulus bill uh, in Congress mm -hmm. in the new year uh, as an avenue for getting more funding? Or what would be a vehicle that you would be targeting at the federal level to make this all happen? Uh, absolutely. Uh, we're, we're very hopeful that there'll be a new stimulus bill. We're also hopeful that that stimulus bill allows the funding to go straight to the localities 
and the the past funding went through the states and only to the localities if uh, the locality was over half a million in population, which only uh, was one county in the in the state of Virginia. So getting the money directly to the localities more quickly, I think, would be really helpful and important. Um, anything that can do and address infrastructure is going to help our economy and and help us um, on many levels. Uh, the good news is we've got some we've got some projects already in the can and are shovel ready. So we're ready to put that money to work immediately. Um, a lot of people don't, a lot of other municipalities don't because they just haven't, don't have the capacity from a planning standpoint. So another area where the federal government could help would be to look at how we currently fund transportation projects, which is done with regional planning money. We need similar regional planning money to address resilience. Again, recognizing that whether it's flooding as it is here in Norfolk or it's fires out west, those are regional issues, and we need to have regional resilience planning dollars in place from the federal government. Yeah, because of course, you know, Norfolk is one case study, but as you just alluded to there, there are issues all over. I know that you helped author a report and really spearheaded it that was put out by the New Deal Leaders Organization of, of various political leaders uh, across the country. And I know that it highlights New Jersey, for instance, trying to build storm-resistant microgrids in response to its resilience needs, St. Petersburg, Florida, trying to upgrade its building codes. Um, is there anything else you'd want to highlight from that report about what it says about the needs here nationally? Well, the idea of being able to share solutions from one state to the other, one municipality to the other is going to be really important um, because uh, what we're doing here in Norfolk, for example, we're trying to become the coastal community of the future. And as we start to define um, solutions ourselves to the extent that there can be a clearinghouse, whether it's through the federal government or um, nonprofit organizations, environmental groups. I think that's going to be important to highlight where the wins are. Um, you know, listen, Norfolk, we have a huge issue here with flooding, but we are just the tip of the spear. Every coastal community in America and around the world is going to be facing what we have. But because of the subsidence and the sinking that we have, we're just a little sooner than others. So um, this is going to be an issue for a good chunk of America, and we have got to start addressing this now. We cannot wait. It, climate change is not a future issue. It is a now issue, and we experience it every day. So you mentioned Norfolk is becoming sort of a, a, a coastal city of the future, and I understand part of that was to put $5 million into an accelerator for resiliency technology that other cities could actually use and purchase. So what would be the kinds of technologies and innovations you're hoping that this accelerator could produce? Well, this is an exciting part of what we are doing here, and we're trying to make lemonade out of the lemons that we have, right? It's it's trying to find opportunities to create a new economic sector, uh, very similar to what the Dutch have done. And through a series of challenge grants, we are identifying, cultivating, and building these new resilient technologies. So um, it could be for water quality. Um, we've got product that is, is new and innovative that deals with um, oyster restoration. Um, we've got another company that is um, working to create new building technologies for uh, dealing with flooding in um, historic 
neighborhoods. Um, another that deals with um, creating storm gardens, uh, rain gardens for municipalities. Another that is a training program for house raising um, around the country. Uh, several are dealing with um, energy solutions as well. There's one that's a kinetic energy company that basically is able to harness energy in the road when uh, when automobiles, trucks, etc., drive over uh, uh, something that's actually implemented in the road. Um, so a lot of interesting, innovative types of things, and um, I'm really I'm really proud of that work. And I think that's what we need is more more great minds coming up with creative out of the box solutions uh, because we can't just keep doing what we've been doing. We, we're going to need some some real incredible innovative ways of thinking to 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 uh, to deal and address with this problem both um, here in Norfolk as well as you know around the country. You mentioned the need for new technology solutions there and what you versus what you have been doing. Is it accurate to say that what you have been doing in Norfolk is relying on say storm surge barriers and flood walls sort of more, you know, basic infrastructure projects to this point? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, I would say that's true. Um, again, we do try and uh, prioritize green infrastructure so that it, uh, it helps with our water quality um, as well as the water quantity. Uh, we have been testing out a new series of flood sensors. Um, so that would be innovative. Again, re- recognizing that a lot of our roads often will flood because the water actually comes up through the storm drains or if we have a huge precipitation event. Um, so trying to understand in real time where that flooding's happening and with the goal ultimately of having real time rerouting of traffic as well as um, the ability to start to prioritize where the best, um, most need is for infrastructure projects in the future as well. Um, but it'd be another way of sensor technology. Uh, we're looking at sensors in our stormwater systems with the possibility in the future of being able to divert stormwater from one area to the other if we anticipated a certain uh, type of storm coming or tidal action. Um, so those those are some of the ideas, but there are a lot of really smart brains putting energy behind this much smarter than I am. Uh, but I'm excited that we're we're really trying to focus on resilience as a sector for innovation. I guess my last question is, you know, we're talking about resilience and how to bake that term, and not just the term, but how to bake those real world solutions into a recovery from the coronavirus pandemic and just into, I think, operations around the country going forward as the climate crisis really sets in. But there's another R word I wanted to at least ask you about, which is retreat. At what point is there a moment where you can't do much more and you have to bring up the retreat word? Or do you think it's possible to fend that off? Well, there is no elected official around who likes to use that word. I can tell you that Um, (laughs) because it's difficult, right? Those are very difficult decisions. Um, They're also very expensive decisions. And um, we are looking at some areas. We've used FEMA money to buy houses where they had severe repetitive losses and creating um, stormwater infrastructure in their place. But when we do that, we're talking about you know four houses at a time in a city of 250,000 people. So um, that's that's a real issue. Uh, but again, I don't think the U.S. Navy can move away from um, a naval base on a coastline. So I I, I don't I don't see that you know we're going to retreat. We're going to have to learn how to deal with this. But there is it needs to be part of the discussion. There's there's 
um, it, it is it is important, and um, we we can't avoid that. You know, as we talk about the pandemic and coming out of COVID, what we're saying here locally, because we've created a seven five seven recovery effort. Uh, with our local business community. And what we're saying is, you know, it's a pandemic now, it's flooding later. There are a lot of elements what this pandemic has caused that can help teach us how we will respond to future flood events. So when businesses are shut down or people can't go to school because of flooded roadways, well, how do we respond? Uh, we've learned to, to, to operate in a more virtual environment. Um, businesses are going to need to start doing a better job of planning for business continuity. Um, so in some ways, I think the pandemic has been a precursor to dealing with climate change in the future. Well, Councilwoman, we really appreciate you taking the time to explain all of this and to share stories from Norfolk. And finally here, I understand that you are about to seek higher office where you're putting these issues at the center of your campaign. Can you briefly touch on that? Sure. Yeah, I'm going to be, um, I'll be announcing next week a run for lieutenant governor and you know, my, my entire theme of the campaign is around access. Um, and so, and one of those key components is access to a clean environment and flood mitigation statewide. So um, I think it's important to understand when we're talking about flooding, it's not just a coastal issue. Um, we Some of our most significant flood events in the Commonwealth of Virginia in the past year have occurred uh, in central Virginia, southwest Virginia, and with riverine flooding because of the intense precipitation events that we're seeing. So it, it definitely needs to be addressed beyond just the coastal areas and uh, more holistically statewide. Well, great. We will leave it there. Thank you so much again for your time. Building back cleaner and building back with more resilience. I hope this episode shed some light on what that could look like. We appreciate you tuning in and hope that you'll subscribe to Political Climate wherever you get podcasts. If you're listening to this on a Thanksgiving Thursday, that's great. We are so glad to have you and we are so grateful in general for all of our listeners' support. I'm Julia Piper, wishing you a fun and safe holiday weekend. <laughs>